2: Stimmen und zu meiner Ruhe, bist du bei mir, geh ich mit Freuden zum Stimmen.
1: Good morning, everybody. Well, since we had a baby born last week and I said we're gonna start to light what Sam rightly noted is a baby candle (laughs) supporting the fecundity of San Francisco, we get to light a candle today. Liz Strand had a grandchild born yesterday, Josephine Ray, 7.7 pounds, You do the translation into ounces. And the condition of lighting the candle was that at some point we get to see that baby in church, so you can help me hold her accountable by any means necessary. I am Vanessa Southern. I'm the senior minister. I'm joined by Sam King, who's our worship associate. Big thanks to our AV team. Is that Shuli up in the, Eric and Shuli? Good, and Jonathan Silk, Joe Chapeau is on chat. If for folks who are joining us on live stream, welcome, and you can get your questions answered. Just to remind folks, those of us speaking and singing without masks, we have taken an antigen test this morning. We had some news this week that the city is lightening up its um, rules. We're being careful here, so thank you all for wearing masks to make sure everybody who's here is safe and feels safe. Some Sundays, it feels particularly appropriate to begin with a land acknowledgement, and I do that in conversation with myself and um, what I've heard, which is that some Native communities don't believe that folks in churches and other organizations should do land acknowledgements unless they are in a relationship with the local community. We actually have been taking offerings for the Segurite Land Trust. We'll take one in the first Sunday in March, um, as we have um, a f- a multiple times in the last couple of years to help rematriate, as they call it, land back into the Ohlone um, Nation. So um, we don't have the relationship, I'd hope, but I feel like today it it feels important to do this. And the land acknowledgement that I'm using today, that I'm reading from, is one that we used in the interfaith Thanksgiving service. Andy Galvin, who is a member of the Ohlone Nation and also who I serve on the board of the Interfaith Council with, um, these are words that he helped us craft. So this morning, President's Weekend, in particular, it feels important. So we acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Aloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Aloni have never ceded, lost, or forgotten their responsibilities as caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, the elders, and relatives of the Ramatosh community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. So welcome everyone to worship. I gave you back your candle. If you will join me in saying the words of our chalice lighting, they're in your order of service, let's say them together as we begin our worship. Oh, no, I'm not done with our special welcome. It is so good. Well, Bill Gans, thank you for starting us off today, and our special guest, Seanette Solker, is here today singing for us, and we just heard a piece of her extraordinary voice, and we're really So excited to have you here, so welcome. And Mark Sumner, thank you for making all of this happen, bringing beauty in, which heals the soul and uplifts the spirit. And so we say the words of our chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. So if you can find a teal hymnal somewhere in front of you, we took a survey today and we have, we, some have walked as part of the unofficial song, what is that called, when you evangelism of this congregation. So we know as of this morning we're 37 short, so we're gonna be doing um, a hymn drive, you can dedicate one, so if you don't have one right near you, go borrow one from somewhere nearby and Mark will lead us in our first hymn. You may rise as you're able in body, spirit,
3: this precious day for all gathered here and those far away for this time we share with love and care oh we give thanks for this precious day oh we give thanks This precious day for all gathered here and those far away. For this time we share with love and care. Oh, we give thanks for this precious day. One more time. Oh, we give thanks. For this precious day, for all gathered here and those far away. For this time we share with love and care. Oh, we give thanks for this precious day.
4: I'm Sam King, your worship associate for today, and if this is your first time uh, visiting or watching, let me welcome you. If you want to get our weekly newsletter, The Flame, or get emailed a reminder about Sunday's live stream link, you can fill out one of the connection forms. They're on the welcome table right outside the sanctuary or available through a link in the order of service or video description. The order of service lists upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect, Please engage in any or all that are of interest to you. A few that I wanted to highlight. uh, First, there's a petition to honor Dr. Howard Thurman. If you'd like to sign it, you can do so after the service at the social justice table. We're also still collecting gifts for the women of Copenhagen this Sunday and next Sunday. Uh, To learn more about it, including what gifts are uh, in demand, you can check out the order of service. Also, uh, I believe we have an announcement about Beloved Conversations. From Grandma Strand.
0: I'm multitasking today. Um, This is uh, the season for Beloved Conversations. They have a session in the spring and in the fall. And the one in the spring, uh, the sign-up is, uh, the deadline is February 28th. I want to read you what they uh, put in their website. It's from, it says, Beloved Conversations is a program for people seeking to embody racial justice as a spiritual practice. Our program is grounded in Unitarian Universalism developed and offered by the Fawz Collaborative at Meadville Lombard Theological School and open to all learners. In Beloved Conversations, we are here to heal the impact of racism on our lives in order to get free together. We are proud of that tradition of our traditional in person version of Beloved Conversations, and it's been offered in more than 250 congregations across the continent over the past decade. And we're grateful that so many communities have made our program a part of their faith formation and social justice work. In 2020, we reimagined the program for an expanded audience with the greater accessibility and reach of a virtual program. So it's online. Your UUSF Board of Directors recently completed the fall program and is inviting you to participate in the spring program, and we are offering scholarships if needed. The next session begins on March 13th and goes through May 29th. The deadline for signing up, as I said, is February 28th. There will be another session in the fall if you can't make it this spring. It's an engaging mixed media program with readings, videos, music, and commentary by specially trained, diverse ministerial staff and others from the UUA. Please contact me in the coffee hour after the service or at uh, my email or the Board of Trustees at UUSF.org email to get more information. Or you can go to the bcvirtual.meadville.org EDU website. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you for that important announcement. Uh, And uh, now greet one another, uh, after which we'll sing our uh, covenant. Uh, We'll say our covenant and sing our doxology. Uh, Let's greet each other.
1: for this precious day,
2: for all
1: gathered here and those far away, for this time we share with love and care, oh, we give thanks for this precious day. We have good weather today, so we have lots of space, beautiful space outdoors for us all to spend time together. Um, After service, I hope if you can stay, you will. Let's say our unison covenant together. The words are printed in your order of service and then we'll sing our doxology. The covenant are some of the promises that we say that bind us together in this community. And we remind ourselves of them. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another.
3: From all that dwell below the skies, let songs of hope and faith arise. Let peace, good will, on earth be sung through every land
4: Our emotions are complicated and chaotic, but they aren't supposed to be, right? There's supposed to be a time and a place for everything. A song I grew up with reminds us, to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to laugh, a time to weep. And just because that song was from decades before I was born and based on the Bible, that doesn't mean anything has changed since then. The Pixar movie Inside Out has an armchair evolutionary biology perspective on emotions. We evolved anger to protect ourselves from harm and grief to get support from loved ones in a time of need, cause and effect, a time for every emotion, everything with its place and its purpose. But that isn't how it actually works. Not for everyone, not all the time. In the rainy season, it might be natural to have a general malaise to grieve the loss of the sun, especially when we have brilliant pharmaceutical marketers telling us all about seasonal affective disorder with the acronym of S.A.D. Never mind that some people grew up in the Pacific Northwest and rain makes them feel at peace and connected. Whenever a family member dies, we're supposed to be broken up, we're supposed to grieve. And when someone else dies or a pet dies, we're supposed to keep our emotions a little bit at arm's length, quickly move on. Never mind that the pet may have been our closest companion for more than a decade, we may have only seen our grandparent once a year. And if we grieve when we aren't supposed to, we're depressed. And if we don't grieve when we're supposed to, we're callous and bottling everything up, and we need to get in touch with our emotions. But emotions are complicated and chaotic, not always cause and effect, not always with a place or a purpose. All of the things I just talked about at least kind of make sense, but What am I supposed to do with grief over the heat death of the universe over inevitable entropy? Everyone I know will be gone in 100 years, the sun will explode in a few billion, and if you believe the current predictions in physics, the Big Bang that happened 14 billion years ago is the last one that will ever happen, and the universe will slowly spread apart and grow cold over trillions of years and all life will cease. Where is the season to mourn the universe? Where is the evolutionary biology reason to grieve something that won't happen in my lifetime or even the lifetime of this planet? Where's the ritual for entropy? And even if it isn't quite as grandiose as entropy, how do we grieve for the abstract things that are beyond us? How do we grieve for the death of a newspaper or a restaurant? How do we grieve for the end of a certain middle-class ideal? Or even the abstract things inside of ourselves. The death of the dream of being a doctor. The end of defining myself by my productivity, my job, by my quick wit. Mourning the person that we were when we were younger. Let me extinguish a candle for the stupid stuff I did in college, a moment of silence because the 80s music apparently counts as oldies now. (laughs) Many of you know that my mom died when I was young, and in the past I gave a reflection about my grief at that time, about how it upended my whole world. And in the middle of the pandemic, I saw a therapist for a bit, nothing too severe, just general anxiety about the world and my place in it that so many of us were feeling at that time. But my therapist kept wanting to go back to my mom. I think he wanted me to have some kind of unresolved grief or trauma, even though he admitted that whenever we talked about it, he hadn't seen any evidence of that. But his response was normal and natural too, because when someone really close to you dies, You're supposed to grieve forever. And it's not just therapists who react that way. When somebody brings up a death, you're supposed to say, I'm so sorry for your loss, no matter how long ago it was, no matter how much time has passed. I think that's one of the reasons why mental health can be so difficult to talk about. We're always looking for a reason, a rationalization for emotions but sometimes they don't fit into a neat box. Sometimes we aren't grieving because of the death or because of a tragedy. Sometimes there isn't unresolved trauma. Sometimes there isn't a cause or effect. Sometimes there is no season. Sometimes there is no place or purpose for our grief. Sometimes we simply grieve. Thank you.
1: I don't think that if you feel sad, you have to feel guilty or ashamed by that. That you have to put on a brave face or you have to get over it, or carpe diem. I actually think to really feel joy, you have to know and be in touch with pain. I think to really rejoice in health, you have to have experienced some illness. To really love, you have to put yourself immediate, immediately in relationship to the most painful kind of vulnerability in the world. To grieve, to grieve, my friends, is only possible if we have loved and cherished the wonder, the beauty, the cherishedness of the thing, the person, the place that we grieve. I actually think even fear or worry might actually be grief in disguise. When I worry about whether my daughter, who is away for the first time, whether she's happy, whether she's safe, whether she feels loved, what I actually think I'm feeling is the grief that she is in a world that I cannot control. full-hearted people, and I think that's what we want to be, are people who are alive to the fullness of life, and that includes and necessitates that we know and are in touch with our grief. So I wanted to have a space in our time of prayer and meditation to name what we feel grief about, and I want to leave that very open. If it's important for you to name it so that other people can hear it, I have a microphone. If you just want to light your candle, and I invite you to light a candle, if you just want to light your candle and whisper it so that it's in the universe, but it's just you and the universe in conversation, do that. And if you want to light a candle or sit where you're sitting and quietly hold it and name it. But as each candle is lit, I'm going to lead us in saying, we hold this grief, so you need not hold it alone. I know some of you already lit candles. You're welcome to light another. You're welcome to come speak your grief if you want to speak it for into the shared community. But I invite you all to come forward and then we'll say some words of prayer over the moment. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone.
2: I am so tired
0: all the time to be a single mom, and it's hard, and I'll do it, but it's hard. Mm.
1: We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone.
0: A cabin in the woods that we built when our kids were little must now suddenly be sold.
1: We hold this grief so that you
0: need not hold it alone. My cousin's death in Minnesota last week.
1: We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone.
0: Even though it's three years, I still um, miss my husband and feel a very strong, empty place.
1: We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. Uh, my brother's death uh, 40 years ago. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone.
3: for our lost sense of common humanity.
1: We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone.
0: those beloved members of our community who are unable to be with us here today because of physical challenges and emotional
1: challenges. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone.
0: beloved Uncle Calvin died at the age of 96 uh, in Hawaii two weeks ago.
1: We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. We hold this grief so that you need not hold it alone. So I invite us into a time of meditation. Spirit of all our ancestors of all of life, you who knew loss and heartbreak, setback and fear, worry, and loneliness, all that grieves the human heart as we know it. Cruelty and injustice, abandonment, and all that breaks the human heart as we know it. Help our hearts to find the room to grieve. Hearts that Add their grief to the rivers of loss known to all and find to the legacy that moves through grief, finds ways in their own heart and together toward healing or wisdom or the simple decision to begin again on what meets us at the other side. Bless the human hearts that love enough to grieve. May these hearts, may our hearts, be restored always in time to our capacity for joy and life abundant. Opening ourselves in the ways we must to stay both soft and to stay strong. Amen. Thank you, Seanette. And I don't know if you could tell, but the birds, the birds started singing with you outside as you sung. It happens sometimes with soloists. They just join in. It's really extraordinary. And thank you all for your gifts to the offering this morning. We'll take it two weeks for the work of drum. And they're gonna, we're gonna be a sponsor of their denominational-wide worship service. We're proud to support the work and ministry of drum and what it does for our denomination and our members. In January, when I was on my, one of my months of sabbatical, I went to the DeYoung Museum. I was starting to feel about that place the way I felt about a gym that I joined years ago when I was in Washington, D.C. This gym that I would walk by on the way to and from work every day and almost everywhere else I was going. And I think I went three times in two years. I like almost was gonna petition them when I left town to put up a plaque for all the donors because I thought really I was more a donor than a member. And I was determined that this year that wouldn't be true for my membership at the DeYoung. And part of that is because there are a few places in this universe that I can count on more often than not to feel protective and nurturing and inspiring, like sanctuaries to my heart and soul and mind. Churches tend to be one of them, or houses of worship, particularly if they have aesthetics that invite a sense of soaring um, or nurturing presence. They tend to invite me into those spaces. Another place is actually libraries, though they aren't always as lovely. Though I did notice that the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco was originally our public library, and that felt perfect for me. The presence of books and quiet space and reverence and invitation to go places of the mind and heart Uh, has that same nurturing, protective, inspiring feeling. And the last are museums of these soul-tending places, seeing human creativity, seeing our capacity to, and desire to capture beauty, or to convey something we feel like is important, or to freeze something we cherish in time, like a landscape. It's an antidote to so much for me and also a thoughtful museum that uses its power to take your eye and your mind and your heart somewhere that's bigger than just aesthetics. I really value that. And that was my experience going to the DeYoung in January. I went, not knowing much about the exhibit, trusting its curators, as I like to. I had seen one other exhibit there, less inspiring, but I still trusted and went to see the works and the larger exhibit around the works of South African artist Lola Amira. If you haven't seen the exhibit, it's going to be there for a while, and I encourage you to go. If you think I'm going to ruin it for you and that bothers you, you're welcome to plug your ears or go have coffee early, and I won't take insult. (laughs) But I don't think I'll ruin it for you. Amira is a black queer artist who uses the pronoun they to describe themselves. It's a choice that reflects the artist's understanding of themselves and their existence as plural. Here I'm quoting, plural existences, they write, in one body, as well as an understanding of the Zulu notion of ayukala, which contextualizes an individual's existence in relation to collective histories and future narratives. Lola Amira's Facing the Future exhibit steps into just that space between the historical and the future and invites us to wonder with them what might be part of that transitional space, particularly as it reflects and is in dialogue with the legacy of colonialism which of course their home nation very much is in conversation around. The exhibit of their work has two installations as I would describe it. The first, where you enter, is what they call a site-specific portal. Pilisa is the word. Pilisa, the artist elaborates, are portals or sacred spaces for the cleansing of wounds and the honoring of ancestors and fostering of connection. You enter the space and you're greeted by a bowl of sea salt invited to place your hands in as you come or as you leave as a way to remove negative energy. Beside you and throughout the entire exhibit are these glass bottles of seawater that have spotlights on them, a reminder, the artist says, of the wounds and the healing powers of the ocean. And the initial space itself is hung with banners or tapestries, some with beads that, that aren't described or explained in this exhibit but in the Sydney Biennial the artist describes what the beads sometimes mean for them. The artist calls this space a sacred grove with an invitation to be present to what unfolds for you. But the space is shaped by some larger intention. It seems pretty clear that it's created around a space and an invitation to grieve all of which is made more apparent by the soundtrack that's playing, that's often filled with what sound like cries of lamentation. This is at the beginning. At the far end of this enormous gallery space is another of Amira's installation. This is a 16-minute film called "Irmandaje: The Shape of Water in Pindorama. This is Lola Amira's production of Bahia, Brazil. The film documents the artist's journey through the city, walking the shores of the ocean, standing in a rainforest, or overlooking the expanse of landscape at one point, and toward the end, sitting in a circle of older women in a ritual of sharing that we can't hear, but we can watch and imagine the content of. The description of the film says it's Amira's contemplating the wounds of the ocean, of the land, of the descendants of enslaved Africans, while offering gestures toward healing. So we see a theme intentional and part of the construct. But what's also important in this exhibit is what lies between the two installations which is this huge room filled with pieces of the museum's permanent collection, of sacred and ritual masks from Africa, of the stools on which chiefs sat, of instruments sculpted for making sacred music of decorative statues of gods and sacred figures, of containers for holding an ancestor's ashes, all from dozens of African communities, Yoruba and Ijo people of Nigeria, Grebo and Sapo people of Liberia, Dogon Dogon in Mali and the Makonde of Mozambique, just to name a few, you walk through and in between this array of sacred objects, of cultural, ritual objects, and, and I, I challenge you not to be overwhelmed by the extraordinary diversity and rich beauty and life they speak of, of all of these communities, just these objects just a piece of representational art and ritual object and you probably wonder as you do right after you're bowled over by how extraordinary each one is by wondering how they came to be in a museum ritual religious objects behind glass tens of thousands of miles away and right after that question the question of All that colonialism took, Lola Amira the artist in their exhibit about what is between past and present, what we do in that liminal space that asks us how we mourn, How we take stock of the beauty, but also the loss and the wounds of colonialism. How it is we heal raises all of those questions as we walk through the exhibit without any comment from them on this piece of the exhibit. The theme, one of the themes that you can't help but take away, as is intended, is that theme of grieving. You're left sitting with this theme of grief. It's one that I think is coming up a lot lately as we dive into our Eighth Principle work. And there are so many layers to the grief that comes up in this conversation and work together here and in our world. And I don't think we're anywhere near understanding the layers of grief. Edgar Villanueva, an expert on social justice philanthropy and a member of the Lumbee tribe, who is also author of a book that is called Decolonizing Wealth, talks in his book about some of this grief, describes some of it. He writes, describing just some of it, we, speaking himself as a Native American, we who were colonized have to grieve for the people, the cultures, and the land that were forcibly taken from us. We have to mourn the suffering of our ancestors who were cheated, annihilated, humiliated, raped. We have to grieve for hundreds of years of being disrespected, displaced, and dispossessed. We have to grieve for our children who embody the trauma of history and now have the decks stacked against them as they face the future. Those who embody what he calls the colonizer's virus, which is this internalized urge to divide and control and exploit, he says, they must grieve too. Grieve the fear, anxiety, and mistrust that characterizes a member of the 1%, the survival mechanisms that they must adopt, which includes staying walled off, physically and emotionally disconnected and (laughs) well-medicated, white people have to grieve the guilt that accompanies whiteness, grapple with the messiness of privilege. You have to come and collect your people, he writes. Settlers and their descendants have to grieve the lives of their ancestors, the culture that made their acts of domination and exploitation even imaginable, possible, and acceptable. People who are enslaved, who are claimed as slaves, brought here, and their ancestor and their descendants have a grief that's analogous in many ways to Villanueva's description of those who colonized, who were colonized, I should say, with its own unique legacy and wounds. Leaders today, of, of every community in this city who are marginalized. Part of the Interfaith Council, you hear these stories all the time, both of incredible work and leadership and beautiful accomplishments as part of this city, but also the stories of woundedness, the grief from those. As we do the work of naming and making space for reckoning with what has been wrought on these shores, and by those from these shores who arrived later, but what comes up in this honest reckoning is of course, grief. It's also often anger and rage, but I don't know about you, if I interrogate my anger and rage, it's often more an an energized form of sadness that refuses to sit with the sometimes powerless feeling of sadness but claim agency. Which is to say what Lola Amira was saying with their work, that realizing all we've lost in the past and still now, and the layers of that loss calls out for this need for more spaces to grieve. Villanueva quotes the Curanda um, Kuranda historian, Kurandara, I think my historian, Aurora Levins Morales in her book, Medicine Stories, who says, ours is a society that does not do grief well or easily. And what is required to face trauma is the ability to mourn fully and deeply all that has been taken from us. But mourning is painful, and we resist giving way to it. Villanueva agrees. He's well known for his seven steps to healing of the legacy of colonialism, the first that he names, the one before the other six before apologize, before listen to those who have been hurt for how to fix the brokenness, before relate and learn to respect each other, before represent differently who is at the power to make decisions, before invest financially in our values, before do the work of repair and reparation, before all of them, the first step, he says, is grieve. Grieve. And on weekends like this one, when we can't help but look back a little to our own national founding story in the United States, given what we're naming, all the violence and grief increasingly looks as much woven into the foundation of the country as the words and deeds of the presidents who get named on a weekend like this one. As we rewrite and retell a fuller, more truthful story of our nation's founding, a big question then that I'm sitting with is how do we make room for the grieving? Because I think Villanueva is right. We can't enter full-hearted and authentically into all the other steps of repair and restoration unless we step honestly into the grief, unless we know that as a place we all stand honestly when we begin, while we look back as we begin to look forward. And I don't have the answer. I imagine we start this work making spaces and giving permission for our own personal and shared feelings of grief the way we did this morning, even if we don't know where they come from. We give permission to others to sit with theirs without any toxic positivity. And I think it's about trusting that if we honor the grief that we're not going to stay mired in it. And as proof of that, I would offer up something you've probably all experienced. Almost any family funeral. Anyone that started out with heavy grief, anyone that we have hosted in this community and we have hosted one in each of the last three weeks Once there's the sharing and the naming and families have gathered both in the service but also together in other venues, a little more broken open, maybe to say things that they have not said before, they always end up, or so often end up, we so often end up in places of laughter and healing and that strange sense that a funeral can have more joy in it and more renewed connection and love than any wedding. Because I think funerals offer this container and space and permission to grieve, and all that opens up for us and among us. So we need, as Lola Amira created, those portals, those sacred spaces for the cleansing of wounds and the honoring of ancestors and the fostering of connection, in that place between the past and the future that we always stand. So may we make such spaces in our individual lives and in our nation's life and be liberated when we do so. May we become through such courageous acts of hearts determined to stay soft and strong. May we become a nation that lifts every voice and together sings, amen.
2: i
3: steady beat and our weary feet come to the place Stop. Our feet stray from, from the places our God.
1: you to put down your hymnals. You may hold hands, you may hold out your hands in a gesture of offering yourself to the world and receiving what blessings it offers you, whatever will send you out into this day. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Amen.